0: I want to make a confession to you. Well, it's not that kind of confession. I, I love the Scriptures. I absolutely love the Scriptures. I have um, not always loved the Scriptures, but for the last 25 years, I've been studying them and, and, and working through them and trying to live my life by those precepts. And I want you to fall in love with the scriptures as well. That's that's what I consider my job. Because the scriptures, understood correctly, can guide us in a way that can point to a truth that would be really difficult for us to find on our own. And as I said, it hasn't been this kind of love affair with me uh, all my life. As a kid growing up Catholic, the scriptures just baffled me. I had no idea what they were talking about. And of course, we really didn't study them. We just got little bits and pieces through the Mass. But I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea. As an adult, when I, when I came back to Christianity in an evangelical setting, then the scriptures still baffled me. But now they were annoying me too, and they were grinding me, and they were, they were not making any kind of sense or common sense. It was a really difficult relationship that I had with the Scriptures. And that's the thing about the Scriptures. If you're going to fall in love with the Scriptures, it's like falling in love with anybody. It's like just loving a friend. How can you love a person that you don't really trust because you don't understand them, because they seem capricious, because they seem like every time you meet them, you don't exactly know what you're going to get? You know, like, who's showing up today? And you're always a bit on guard. You know, it's that kind of feeling... Because I'll tell you, when I was trying to work through the scriptures early on, it was like, it seemed like the Bible was talking out of both sides and every side of its mouth all the time. You know, it's like, how do you resolve all this? God is love, but God also orders genocide. How do you deal with that kind of issue? Um, God will never leave or forsake us, and yet over and over God is turning his back, and, and people are wailing for God to, to come back to them and, and turn his, their face back to him. God is supposed to be slow to anger, and yet we're always hearing about his wrath and how his wrath burns and the effects of his wrath on the people who don't follow his ways. Polygamy and slavery, okay. Homosexuality, not so much. How do you deal with these kinds of issues? We're supposed to forgive. We're told to forgive. Seventy times seven, which in the numerology, the number system of the Hebrews, that means forever in a day. It means you never stop. And yet there's an unforgivable sin that we need to deal with. Marriage. Marriage is binding unless adultery is uh, in the picture. But if you leave your marriage for any other reason, even if it 's abusive and you remarry that 's adultery too there are seas that are parting, rivers that are parting, people are walking on lakes there are burning bushes and floods. The sun stops and stays in the sky. Do I need to believe in a six day six twenty four hour day creation week? These are the things that I was dealt with that I was dealing with i don 't know if you 've dealt with them yet or move through them if you still have questions. But how do we make friends with and learn to love scriptures that are so baffling, that seem to come from a world so alien to ours? How do we deal with this? You know, I think there are three ways that we can initially deal with the scriptures. One of them is just to suspend our disbelief. Just take it on faith, right? Just double down and what... People have told you about the Bible. It must be true because they know what they're talking about and I'm going to believe it. What's one way we can deal with it? The other one is to chalk it all up to myth. Chalk it all up to poetry. Chalk it all up to a irrelevant book written in a world that was pre-scientific and so on and so forth and it's really not relevant to us anymore and we can completely dismiss it. But there's a third way that we can look at Scripture. We can take these English words that have been translated three languages, hence, to us, and we can put them back into the context from which they came. Try to put them back into the world from which they came. The language, the worldview, the culture. And see what that starts to tell us. Because that is going to make all the difference. From that point of view, from that contextual point of view a new understanding, a new kind of meaning starts to take place. We start to see things that suddenly make sense again. And not only make sense, but make common sense. And there are things that we can see reflected in our daily activities, our daily lives. We can see the emotions. We can see the way people reacted to a deep relationship with God. And we can start moving into that relationship as well. This is where we're trying to go. This is what we're trying to do. Take this middle way. Now, how does that work? How does that work as we're trying to work Scripture this way? Um, my, My whole line of thought was triggered by an email that Baron sent me. And she sent me a blog from a Christian feminist. Okay? Is that an oxymoron right off the bat? They had a Christian feminist. And she she makes no bones about it. She said, this is really difficult. How do I practice my Christianity that I love at the same time the ideals that I believe in? And she tells this great story right off the top that she was trying to date someone. She decided she really needed to date Christian men because she's a Christian, right? And I didn't even know there was a dating site called Hinge. Apparently there's a dating site called Hinge. Hinge. You all know about this anyway. So she finds this guy who identifies as a Christian and and she gets, you know, she said her happy bells went off. And she's sitting across the table from him at this date and one of the first things he asks her is so how do you feel about gender roles in Christian relationships? Check please. Because you know where he's going with this, or maybe you don't know where he's going with this. You know, there's a, there's a debate within Christianity, and it's complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Have you ever heard this before? Complementarians, complementarians and egalitarians. Okay. Have you noticed that there's a difference between men and women? Okay. There's a difference between men and women. Now, we understand that men and women are equal, but we've got to admit that they're different, Right? Frank showed this this great little video on Tuesday night about the difference between men and women's brains. Were some of you here for that? You know? And so the man is saying, you know, he, had a, he had a little head, a male head and a female head on two uh, pedestals. And he goes to the male head and he says, okay, you know, the, the male brain, you have to understand, is all about boxes. You know? A man has a box for every subject, and it's all neatly arranged, and the most important thing is the boxes don't touch. So if you're going to talk to a man about a subject, he pulls his box out about that subject. He opens it up, and he talks only about that subject. And then when he's done, he, puts, he closes it, and he puts it back and makes sure that it doesn't touch. And then he walks over to the female brain, and he crosses himself. <laughs> he says, the female brain is like a ball of wire everything is connected to everything else. You know, the job is connected to the kids, and the kids is connected to this, and this is connected to that. And so when you're talking to a woman, everything is connected at the same time. It was hilarious the way that he put it. And obviously we see the truth in that. And then the the kicker was, he said, men have a box that women don't know about. In this box is absolutely nothing. And that's our favorite box. (laughs) He said it's why men can do seemingly brain-dead things for hours on end, like fly-fishing, you know. But anyway, it was just this this hilarious realization. Yes, there's a difference between men and women, but we understand at the same time that we're equal. You know, vive la différence. We're different biologically. We're different psychologically. We're different emotionally. But we're still equal. Well, complementarians take it another step what they say, and it's based on a literal reading of the scriptures of of the New Testament and the Old Testament, the entire Bible, that men and women are equal, but they're different not just biologically or emotionally or psychologically, they're different in function, they're different in roles, and this is where the stuff starts to hit the fan, because men are understood to have the headship, the leadership in the family, in the church, and in the society, And women are not supposed to take part in those areas. Now, anybody's blood pressure going up here? (laughs) All right. That is the complementarian view. The egalitarian view says everybody is equal. Men and women are equal in all functions and in all roles. In fact, the, the secular humanists, who are egalitarian, of course, are taking it to such a degree that they're actually starting to erase the differences between men and women that are Biological, and we're seeing that happening in our society. But I think obviously we are, well, maybe not obviously to you, but we are egalitarian in our outlook. But we have to deal with this complementarian idea because it's there in the Scripture. If we're going to make friends with Scripture, if we're going to fall in love with Scripture, we're going to have to answer certain questions. And so I thought this was a great case in point for us to take a look at. There are three main Scriptures, in Ephesians, and Colossians, and in 1 Peter that talk about the roles of men and women, that is, between husbands and wives. And all three of them say the same thing, that women are supposed to be, and I'm going to use the S word here, submitted to their husbands. All right, That's a... That's really a four-letter word for us. I mean, that is a terrible word for us, for anybody, but especially in, in, in this situation. When we think of submission, we think of being a doormat. When we think of submission, we think of our our wills and our hopes and dreams and everything about us, our very identity being bulldozed by somebody else. We're going we're to come up with a different look at what submission is all about, but we still have to skin this cat in terms of what is going on with this complementarian view. Is it true? Is it real? Well, let's read. I'm only going to read one of those three. I'm going to read from, um, from Ephesians because that's the one that has most of the detail. But every single one, I put the uh, Colossians and, and First Peter um, citations down there. So if you want to read, and I hope you'll read, so you can read through these yourselves and start to see if what I'm going to tell you about context really holds true for you. But here's Paul. He's talking to the the church at Ephesus. And at chapter 5, verse 22, he writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. All right. Sounds harsh. Sounds unfair. Sounds like fighting words. I can see it on your face right now. You know, what is going on here? I mean, just reading it, just taking that topsoil layer off the English translation, I mean, it's hard to think it says anything else. It's saying it flat out. All right? It's harsh. It's unfair by our standards. Compared to what would be the question? Well, compared to our understanding of of what female and male roles should be, what is fair within a society and within a family, compared to Jesus? I mean, what we know of Jesus—Jesus Jesus was absolutely fair, wasn't he? Wasn't he making everyone equal? Didn't he elevate women? How in the world would he condone what his apostles are writing here in these letters? What was? Why was Peter and Paul teaching what they are teaching? What, what's the what's the reason for this? I want to use another example from Scripture. In Exodus and in Leviticus, these, those are the, the two books of, of the law, of the first five books of the Bible. There is a, a rule there that if anyone hurts another person... You will take an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a wound for a wound, a burn for a burn, and a life for a life, and it goes on and on. In other words, there will be an exact reciprocity. For anything that you do to someone, it's going to be done to somebody else. Now to us, that sounds really harsh, doesn't it? I mean, if I accidentally put out your eye, you're going to come gouge my eye out? Seriously? Is that what you're going to do? The question then becomes, it sounds harsh, but compared to what? See, in the culture of the time, in the submitted cultures of the Near East, and this would be Jewish as well as, as Arabian cultures, they were honor and shame societies. Honor and shame societies work by different principles. If anyone hurt from a different clan, hurt someone in your clan, you are obligated by blood to retaliate. And then once you did, they were obligated to retaliate back to you. It becomes a Hatfield and McCoy kind of feud every single time something would happen. And it would decimate tribes. It would decimate clans and families. Hammurabi, Hammurabi the, uh, the, the great king uh, in the Assyrian Empire, was the first to come up with this idea of reciprocity. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. As harsh as it sounds to us, it was so much better than what they had before. It softened, it mitigated, it set limits to what could happen if someone hurt another person. So putting it back in context, something that sounds so terrible, it was really better than what was there before. And in truth, there is no record that they ever actually did this anyway. If you got maimed by somebody, whether it was on purpose or by accident, if you lost an eye, what they would do is they would put you on the block as if they were selling you as a slave, and they would calculate your worth whole, and then would calculate your worth with one eye, and then the perpetrator would have to pay the difference to you. So it became a fine system. So even, even though they had this idea of reciprocity, they executed it in a different way. And so what is going on here with this? What's going on with these Roles within the household. It's something similar, I think. In the ancient world that we're talking about, there were three basic relationships the relationship between the husband and wife, between the father and the children, and between the master and the slave. Those were the three basic, because slavery is an ingrained part of their culture. People had their domestic bond servants or their slaves. Those were the three basic relationships. Now from the 4th century or so B.C.E. on, there was the idea that the household mirrored the larger universe. And so the, the hierarchy, the way that the family was ordered, was a mirror to society, to the gods themselves, to the universe as a whole. And so they believed the ancient Greeks and the Romans and in a different way the, the Hebrews. They understood this man headship of the family to be God ordained, to be part of the the natural order of things, if you were, if you will. And men had absolute unilateral and unlimited control over their wives, over their children, and over their slaves. There was no mitigating force. There was no accountability, you know? There was, there was nothing, and obviously this is a recipe for abuse, which often went on in families, but there was no way around it. The children, the slaves, the women, the wives, had no recourse. They had nothing else that they could do. The household codes, as they were called, were so important to these governments, to these nations, especially to Rome, that Rome enforced these household codes, because they believed that it was essential to the Pax Romana, to the Roman peace, to the stability of their empire. And so if you were to break these codes in any way, you would feel the full force of the Roman Empire on your neck. So this is serious stuff, the way that it was practiced in that culture. Now, if we just read the first section of this passage in Ephesians, it's an exact restatement of these household codes. But... Paul is doing something interesting here. He's stating what the code is. Everybody knew this. It wouldn't shock them a bit. It shocks us to hear it. It wouldn't have shocked them because they knew what the codes were. But he's deepening it and he's taking it another layer. He is adding the fact that just as Christ is the head of the church and the church submits to Christ, this is the type of relationship. He's bringing a dignity to it. He's bringing a depth to it that didn't necessarily exist in the codes as they were practiced in the civil arrangement. But that's just the first section. In the second section, a radical shift is taking place. Take a look as we continue on now at verse 25. We've just heard, wives, be subject to your husbands, right? But now husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis 2 there. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. What's happening here? See, this is an earthquake that we won't feel culturally. Never before had the man had any, the husband, had any restriction placed on his authority in any way. But what's happening here? First he restates what the women's obligation was. But now, Paul and Peter both are putting the code into a Jesus context. A mutual loving submission. Something that hadn't existed before. If both... Husband and wife are in submission to each other. Who's really in charge? See, this is where he's getting. And notice, too, that the directive to the husband is about four times as long as the directive to the wife. Because this was a absolute earthquake. It was a slap in the face. You have to imagine the the dropped jaws. You have to imagine the gasps as he's saying this or as they're reading this letter. Because never before has the man's authority been in any way restricted, any way challenged, any way changed. And we just can't imagine the radical nature of this to an ancient audience. And then he says, it's a great mystery. Yeah, absolutely. In other words, just trust it. Do what I'm telling you to do. Don't resist it. Because things are going to happen. But here, we're just getting started. Take a look at what happens in the next section. And this is repeated in all three sections. Take a look at Ephesians. Now we've gone into chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Children. Remember there are three main relationships. Husband and wife, father, children, and master and slave. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is Right? And then he quotes again from the the, uh, Torah, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long upon the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, Not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Condoning slavery, telling slaves to be good slaves. This just flies in the face of everything that we understand culturally. But do you see what he's doing here? And then, continuing on, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Every one of the three relationships is recouched into a mutual submission. Masters and slaves, husbands and wives, fathers and children... Because within that context what is going to change? We have to take the entire passage and in the case of Peter the slaves and the children come first and then he talks about husbands and wives and you have to connect the dots there as well. But this is the thing that is most incredible to me. In the same breath wives and slaves are to be submitted just as the husband and the master is to them. It's Mind-blowing culturally for us, morally, ethically. We ask, how in the world does the Bible let slavery and sexism stand? How is this possible? How is this in any kind of connection with Jesus' teaching? Why endorse these household codes as they appear to be doing? Why not call some sort of social justice revolution into play? Shouldn't we be overturning this kind of injustice, changing the face of the culture so that it reflects the kingdom as Jesus understands it, as Jesus was teaching it to us? You know, I think there are three possible reasons why this is going on. The first reason. The first reason is that the first followers of Jesus believed that he was coming back in their lifetimes. This is written into the the New Testament as well. They believed that the time was really short. They also were living under a present crisis, as Paul calls it. And most likely that was the Roman persecution itself. Paul is constantly trying to keep the people to just live within the status quo. Because the time is short, Jesus is coming back, and if we buck the system... The full weight of persecution is going to come on us so we won't be able to continue operating as a church. We won't be able to continue operating as a community. So given this situation, where we just got this little bit of time here. Remember he says, if you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. Just be as I am. Focus on what? On a micro-relationship and not a macro-relationship. There are many who say that Jesus was a political social justice warrior and a revolutionary, but on my reading, what I see him is working with the individual heart, trying to get heart lights to turn on from the inside out, trying to get interior transformation to take a turn. And so this idea that instead of expending all the energy and creating the chaos that would ensue from a cultural revolution, focus here, remember the time is short, Focus interiorly. Make your heart what it is supposed to be so that you're keeping your eyes on the prize. Grow where you're planted. Focus inward with the time that is left because that transformation from the inside also has a leavening effect to the community around. And kingdom, as Jesus understood it, the state of being, the quality of life when we are connected it's going to grow faster from that than even from a revolution. But there is one more reason, and to me this is the absolute key. This is the most important thing, I think, that Jesus is trying to get across, Peter and Paul are trying to get across, all of the New Testament is trying to get across. And that is this. Submission, for whatever we think about it, teaches us something that dominance can never teach us. Submission teaches us something spiritually. teaches us something interiorly that dominance can never do. This is the key to Jesus' training. It's something he's always trying to teach us and show us. That kingdom, this quality of life, this quality of connection, can only be experienced through emptying ourselves. Through a loving submission to everyone and each other. See, According to Jesus, those who are in submitted positions actually have an advantage over those who are in dominant positions. Remember what he said about the rich man? Harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and everyone freaks out. But those in dominant positions are going to have a harder time to learn what submission can teach, what humility can teach than those who are already in those physically submitted positions. If you're in a dominant position, to learn to submit is a really difficult thing. But if you're already in a submitted position, then you need to learn to love the service and learn to love that way of dealing with relationships. Look how Jesus puts it at Matthew 20, verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is taking the notion of the hierarchy, of the pyramid, that we all live by, and inverting it, turning it absolutely upside down. If you want to be first, you're going to be last. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. You have to empty it out. His ideal person, the one who sees kingdom, the one who realizes kingdom, is the one who is poor in spirit. And we hear a term like that in English, and we think it's lacking spiritual gifts, or somehow failing to be able to apprehend the spiritual. But in the Aramaic, you know ruach means those who have an attitude of poverty even if they're rich those who have an attitude of submission even if they're powerful this is what jesus is trying to get across when we let go when we allow ourselves to submit to a power that is greater than ourselves even if that power greater than ourselves is our own marriage Something changes in us. Something dies without which the seed cannot grow. This is what he's trying to get across. You cannot go where I'm going from this dominant position. You cannot go where I'm going with an ego-based identity to all of this accomplishment or all of this material acquisition. It won't work Like the camel going through the eye of the needle. It can't go there. What can you learn from this other position? This is what Jesus is trying to get across. But, here's the catch. And it's a good catch. If Jesus and his apostles were not trying to change the hierarchy of their day, they were trying to change the interior attitudes and hearts of the people that they served would they be trying to change the hierarchy of our day? See? It's not the hierarchy. It's not the culture that matters. Those are accidents of birth. Born in the first century, born in the 21st century. It's the interior journey that really matters. Now, our society is much more egalitarian. Maybe it still has a ways to go, but much more egalitarian than it was in the first century... Right? Slaves, women, children, minorities, especially over the last 150 years, just take it from the Civil War, have paid a dear price and fought long and hard to get the equality and the equal rights that were due them as children of God. Do you really think that Jesus would undo that? Do you really think that Jesus or Peter or Paul Want to take this hard-fought equality as far as it's gone, as imperfect as it is, and take it back to something that is hierarchical? Of course not. That's not what they're about. we fought for this equality. We can keep this equality. But we have to also understand That even though Jesus would not rescind these rights, he would still be emphasizing to each and every one of us that without giving up our equality for the good of someone else, without without feeling that the equality of someone else and their rights were even more important than ours, then we will never learn the lesson that he's trying to teach us. This loving submission, this mutual submission, is everything about servant leadership, about kingdom, about the love that Jesus says will define us, not only as his followers, but those who can connect with God at a level that will set us completely free. Yes, we're absolutely equal, but we should stand ready to give that equality to whoever stands in our path and needs it. Our husbands, our wives, our children, our friends, and as Jesus would say, even the enemy. Because that defines our lives in Christ. Viva la difference. But equal. Yeah? And so, women? Yeah. You can teach men. And you can make decisions in your home. That's what we're saying. But always, every single one of us needs to be willing to learn to submit, which simply means that we care more about the rights of another than we do even about our own. That we're always willing to give our life for our friend, which is the highest definition of love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's so easy to get into the weeds with this stuff. (sighs) Keep it on the level of our hearts. Let everything that we've talked about this morning, let everything that we think about and study, not stay in our minds, but descend into our hearts to a place where we can really use it. A place that changes our attitudes and softens our posture and softens our defensive positions in a way that we can then just be available, transparent, vulnerable, open, humble, and in perfect connection with everyone around us. It's a scary place to go. You know that about us. Help us every step of the way, Lord. Show us how it works. Bring those into our lives that exemplify what it is that we need to be able to overcome, to find the connection that will make us free. Free in you and free in your love. Thank you, Father. Never let us forget, we can only do any of this because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.